A few weeks ago when I spoke here, I, I, I shared with you that my youngest, who's seven, told me he was going to rate me one to ten, and if you were here for that service, you know at the end he gave me a 9.5, <laughs> and this was the assessment. I, I was pretty funny, direct quote, pretty funny, and I seemed to be confident enough, but I didn't talk about him enough, and so I got a 9.5. So last Sunday, I'm speaking, and he was there. He decided not to go to children's church so he could sit and listen and give me another grade, and I got a 9.9. So I asked, of course, you know, what happened? What, how, did I, how did I improve? And he said, well, you would have gotten a 10, but you talked about me too much. <laughs> so there's a, there's a sweet spot I'm, I've got to try to hit. So the, the gospel text today is, gives us a line we all know pretty well. Some of us perhaps have heard it many, many times in our lives, that a prophet is not without honor except in his home country or in his hometown. That's how it shows up in other gospels, but in Mark it actually is even more pointed. So Jesus is in his hometown, he's in Nazareth, and he is teaching, and he's met with offense, he's met with incredulity. People are offended by him, which we'll talk about in a moment why. And he, he says not only that a prophet is without honor in his hometown, but also amongst his kin and even in those who in, in his house. So Jesus sharpens the point, right? It's not just when you're at home in your hometown, but it's even when you're at home with your family. He says that the prophet is met with this honor. And that theme of Recognition and, re and rejection runs through all the texts that we have today. It's not the only theme, but it is a theme that runs through all of these passages, which we're going to look at in a moment. I do think, though, that we need to sit with the truth that Jesus met with rejection at every turn. It's easy to imagine Jesus as, as kind of imminently likable, that Jesus would have been approachable and affable and lighthearted and fun. And he, he probably was at times, all of those things. But we, what little bit we know about his life, we know that rejection was at the heart of it. That he not only, of course, dies in Jerusalem or outside the city because he is condemned and, and rejected by officials, by those with authority, but also that at that moment in his life, at the end of his life, he's abandoned. I mean, very few of his family and friends stay with him, and even those who stay with him stay with him at a distance. But even before he gets to Jerusalem, right, right from the very beginning of his ministry, even in his hometown, he's met with rejection. And it's, it's kind of, it's easy to miss this about Jesus, in part because I think most of us, I mean, we're here this morning, presumably, because we love Jesus. We like him. I mean, Jesus, Jesus feels like family to us. And so it's easy to, again, think that it, it makes little sense that Jesus would have been killed. But the truth of the matter is the Gospels show us that wherever Jesus was, at home or away, whether he was in a small town like Nazareth or the center of his civilization, which is Jerusalem, he was rejected. Not only by people in power, but also by his family by his neighbors, by his kin. In Nazareth, they reject him because he's familiar. They know him. 
In fact, in this text today, when he starts teaching, they say, he's saying wonderful things and he's doing wonderful things, but we know who this is. This is the carpenter. This is Mary's son. And, and he has brothers and they name his brothers. And he has sisters and they don't name his sisters. And then the gospel, Mark tells us, the gospel writer tells us, they took offense at him. And we don't know exactly what the offense is, but it seems to be something like this. We know you. How dare you talk to us this way? How dare you pretend to be a prophet? We've seen you grow up. We remember when you were in diapers. Our kids went to school with you. We know your brothers. We know the kind of trouble that they've caused if you haven't caused. So in, in Nazareth, he's rejected because it's familiar. In Jerusalem, he's killed because he's perceived as, as a radical, as dangerous. But in either case, he's recognized and rejected. In Nazareth, they, they don't think he can be a prophet because he's so familiar to them. In Jerusalem, they recognize that he's a prophet and that he's dangerous because he is. But in either case, he's met with rejection. And I think those of us who consider ourselves friends of Jesus who consider ourselves his brothers and sisters, his family, we need to take seriously the possibility that we do the same still. That Jesus is met with recognition and rejection even amongst us. That it's possible to be so familiar with him that we do not respond well when he's present. We like to think, I think, we think, that if we knew it was Jesus, we'd always receive him. That we only reject someone when we're confused about who it is. And you do get that impression. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, at the last judgment, as the sheep are separated from the goats, he says, I was hungry and you fed me, or I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was naked and you clothed me, or you didn't clothe me. I was in prison and you visited me, or you didn't visit me. And in all of those cases... They respond with, when did we see you? When did we see you? But I, I, and I do think there are times, of course, when we miss Jesus. But I think part of the reason we miss him is not so much that we don't recognize him as that we do recognize him and we don't actually want that. We don't actually like the way he comes to us. You remember the story of Naaman who comes to the prophet, Naaman has leprosy, he's looking to be healed, he comes to the, to the prophet's house and asks the prophet to heal him, and, and instead the prophet sends his servant out and says, tell, tell the, the general to go wash in the Jordan seven times. And Naaman's response is not, well, that won't work. It's just he's offended that that's what he's being asked to do. Shouldn't you have come out and waved your hands over me and spoken a prayer? You should have done something that fits my rank. And I, I think that, that that instinct is in almost all of us. We want to be saved. We want God to deliver us. We want God's work in our lives. But we want it to fit our expectations in some way. And God is relentlessly disappointing. He just won't do it that way. I think in part because those desires are arising from the wrong parts of ourselves. They're coming from not our spirit, but our flesh in the language of Paul. And so... What I want to talk about for a few minutes this morning is how to be the kind of people who welcome Jesus rather than recognizing him and resisting him, either because he's too familiar or because what he's doing seems too disruptive. 
How do we respond? And I think the key is in, in the gospel text. And that's, you have to have faith. Notice in the text, there's a kind of mutual astonishment. They're astonished that he's saying and doing these things, given the fact that they know who he is. They know his family. They know his history. But he is amazed at their lack of faith. He's astounded by their lack of faith. And notice, they're offended at him. He's not offended at them. One of the things that is beautiful about Jesus is that he has no ego. Jesus is not angry that they're offended at him. He's not defensive. But he is grieved that they can't see what is right in front of their faces, that they can't recognize it. He's not offended that they didn't take him seriously. Again, his ego is not bruised. He's troubled that the very thing they think they're praying for is present to them, and they don't know how to recognize it. They don't know how to reach for it. In C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, in the last book called The Last Battle, there's a moment in which Aslan has triumphed, and he's ready to bring all of Narnia, old Narnia, into new Narnia, into the kingdom that he has prepared for them. And if you remember, the way into the new Narnia leads through this barn, And inside that barn, right at the gates of the new Narnia, are some dwarves who sit there unseeing, even with Aslan present, even with everyone around them telling telling them, let's go. New Narnia is open. It's waiting on us. You can come too. And they laugh and laugh and laugh. Just in last week's gospel, when Jesus comes into Jairus' house to heal Jairus' daughter, to raise her from the dead... When Jesus says, she's not dead, she's sleeping, they laugh at him. And he sends them out and and raises her back to life. And I think there's this way in which faith is about seeing what's true in spite of the ways that sin wants to keep us from seeing it. So faith is not seeing, the way Paul will talk about it is faith is seeing what can't be seen. Faith is not a, a kind of positive confession in which you you claim your way into a new reality. Faith is recognizing what's in fact true in God in spite of what seems to be true in your experience. So when you walk by faith, you're not confessing something that is not true into existence. You're confessing something that is true, but it's hard to see if you're dominated by fear, if you're dominated by doubt and greed and all that sin has done to our souls. And so if we want to be a place, if we want to be home for Jesus, if we want to welcome him, we have to be people of faith. Not because he's looking for us to have faith and then rewards us. I mean, there's, a, there's an old idea. It's, a, it's an old idea. I wish, I wish it would die, but it's hard to kill for some reason. And that is the idea that God wants us to have faith in him. God needs us to have faith in him. And so he puts us on trial to see whether or not we'll respond lovingly. In fact, sometimes this is used to explain why we exist at all, right? That God wants to be loved, and so he wants to be loved by people who are not robotic, who are not automatons, but are free will agents. And so God creates human beings and gives them freedom in hopes that they will turn to him freely. But that just makes God out to be a kind of desperate creep, right? Who's all-powerful but hungry for something more still, and wants us to choose him in spite of everything. I mean, that, that's the worst kind of egoism, right? That's the worst, for a God like that to exist would be the worst of all possible news, far from good news. 
God doesn't want us to have faith because he's somehow satisfied. His ego is somehow gratified by us having faith in him. He doesn't need you to trust him. He's pleased by our faith because he knows if we live by faith, we will see what's actually going on rather than what seems to be going on. That when you walk by faith, you're not lying to yourself. You're seeing the truth finally. You're recognizing what's really going on at the depths of existence in spite of what seems to be happening. Faith is recognizing the deeper truth, the secret of life. Faith is recognizing that what really matters is this and not what seems to matter. And so God is pleased by our faith, not because it gratifies God, but because he delights when we're able to live in the truth. Because living in the truth brings joy and peace and goodness. When we live in the truth, his life flows through us and we find the abundance of life he means for us. And so it's, it's absolutely essential that we learn to be a home for Jesus. Learn to be a place where Jesus can dwell. And so with that in mind, really quickly, let's look at the three passages for today. The first one is the psalm, Psalm 123, which the lectionary gives us. And that psalm ends with this, it's a prayer, and it ends with this kind of exclamation point. God, we need your mercy because we have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant, no end of contempt from the proud. They would have swallowed us alive when their anger flared against us. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. So the psalmist is crying out, we've suffered so deeply because the proud and the rich demean us. This, we've been rejected and we need you to save us from that rejection. And what I want to suggest here, and we don't have time to unpack it all, is that in each one of us, there is a poor self, that is the true self, and then there is a proud self, that is the false self. That this is not a psalm about those people and us. This is a psalm about the true you, you as you are in Christ, you, are, you as you are in God's knowing, and you as you are in your own eyes. You as you are in the imagination of your heart. The true you, the you that is genuine to God, and the false you. And rejection, learning to accept God, is about learning not to be rejected by your own superior self. You remember the story of Jacob and Rachel and Leah. He falls in love with Rachel, but instead his father-in-law, on the night of the wedding, sneaks in the other woman and eventually he realizes that what the game is and has to work seven more years for the love of his life. I think all of us are both Rachel and Leah. There's the part of ourself that is beautiful and desirable, the, the, the self we like to present to others, and then there's the self that's actually able to bring forth the fruit of God. The, the true self that's actually able to yield the fruit of the Spirit. And crucial to our relationship with God, crucial to being people of faith, is to be who you are with God. To be honest with God. To live from that deep, true self. And not from your projection. 
not trying to be what you imagine God wants you to be, but simply being true to yourself is what enables you to see who God truly is, and then God's life comes alive in you. And so it's, it's about asking God to save you from your own proud self, your own pride, and listen to the poverty of your heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. The real you, the real me, is a me, is a you that knows we don't have the power to make the life that we need. I can't bring about the outcomes I want. My proud self is always thinking just a little bit more effort. If I try just a little bit harder, if I say this word, if I give this offering, if I make this sacrifice, it will happen. But the real you knows there's nothing you can do. And you don't need to do anything. Just be open-handed with God. And then the Old Testament reading today is Ezekiel. I won't say much about this except to say here's another prophet who's experienced rejection. He's a priest who becomes a prophet. He's in exile. And he's just had this incredible vision of God. And then God calls him to stand up on his feet. So he's, he's had this vision of God by the river. He falls on his face as dead, and God says, Stand up, son of man or mortal. Stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. And he spoke. The Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. Now notice, he says, You stand up. But then he's only able to stand up because the Spirit in him raises him up. Then he says, son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. So here's another text about recognition and rejection. They will know a prophet has been among them, but they still may not listen. Just as with Jesus, they recognize and they reject. But again, I don't want us to think about this passage as us and them. Those people will reject us. This is happening in me and in you. In me, in my true self, the one who hears the word of the Lord, I'm like Ezekiel. And in me, in my false self, I'm like the people around Ezekiel who are stubborn and rebellious. And part of what it means to be a person of faith, part of what it means to learn to be a home for Jesus, is to learn to say to yourself, you need to be quiet here and listen. You have to talk your own self into listening to God's voice that's speaking in you. On our, our, our way home from family vacation a few days ago, it's early in the morning, we're getting in the car, it's just me at the wheel and Emery, my seven-year-old. Everybody else is still coming out of the house to get in the car. And Emery says, Dad, I have a question for you. Yes, sir. How do you tell the difference between God speaking to you, the devil speaking to you, or are you just speaking to yourself? I said, it's pretty early. Why are you asking me this? And he said, well, I couldn't think of anything else you might want to talk about. couldn't think of anything else you might want to talk about. And so this is what I told him, and I, and I stand by it. Actually, you're always talking to yourself. All of us are always dialoguing with ourselves. And in the midst of what we're saying to ourselves, God is trying to speak. And in order to hear what God is saying, 
we have to quiet the voices of accusation that we levy against ourselves. We have to quiet our own critique of ourselves in order to hear what the word of the Lord is. Just like we have to quiet words of praise of ourselves in order to hear what the word of the Lord is. And if we don't do that, then evil takes advantage. That Satan's use of your thoughts, this is why Paul tells the Corinthians, take every thought captive. You have to have a way of taking your own thoughts and opening them up to the Lord. If you don't, they will be used against you. And most of the damage that's done in our lives is done because we internalize the wrong voices and then in our internal dialogue, we privilege the wrong voices and keep privileging them and keep privileging them in spite of the fact that Jesus is speaking. So over and over and over again in our lives, Jesus is present in the synagogue of our hearts speaking, but we reject it because it's too familiar and instead we listen to other voices, our own voice that has been preyed upon by the enemy. The voice of Jesus can, be seen, can seem so ordinary that you reject it and give room to the drama of accusation when what Jesus is simply saying is peace, quiet, rest, wait. We instead give voice to the drama. And that brings us to the epistle for the day, which is, again, a famous passage. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, a church that has rejected him. I'm almost done. A church that has rejected him. He planted it. They've turned away from him following the super apostles. And at the end of that letter, he's, he's trying to bring to bear his heart for them. And to do that, he shares this story, which is very much Ezekiel's story played out again. I knew a man in Christ 14 years ago who was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And everybody can see pretty quickly, Paul's talking about himself, right? He's talking about himself. And he's pretending not to, but it's pretty clear what he's actually doing. And he's had this encounter in heaven, if you'll go to the next set of texts. Yeah. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain. So no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. So this is a kind of humble brag in which he's saying, I can't talk about this man who's been to heaven and been in the presence of God and heard these revelations. I can't talk about him. If I did, it wouldn't be wrong. If I boasted in all that, I would have reason to boast, but I'm not gonna boast in all of that these surpassingly great revelations. In other words, you've turned away from me to follow these people who you think are superior. I've been in God's presence and heard revelation directly from God, but I'm not going to talk about any of that. It's the same guy who says to the, the same church earlier, I speak in tongues more than you all, but we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, the word is actually closer to carried away. In order to keep me from being carried away, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded to the Lord or with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, 
For my power is made perfect in weakness. Now say that with me for just a moment. My power is made perfect in weakness. Now we've all heard this, but pay attention to what Paul is actually claiming. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Again, this incredibly familiar, but I think it's easy to miss the point here. It's easy for this to sound cliche, like something that's you know, stitched onto a pillow or put onto a bumper sticker. But Paul is grappling with this community that has rejected him, like Ezekiel's been rejected, like Jesus has been rejected, Paul has been rejected, and he's grappling with what this means. And he's aware of his own internal dialogue. I know a man, but I can't talk about that. And what he wants to do is lead with the strong self, lead with the self of power. He wants to, his instinct is to say, oh, you want to talk about miracles. I've been in the presence of God and heard things that cannot be expressed. He wants to lead with, I'm more powerful than all of you. But he can't because that's not where Christ dwells in him. And he says, I've been given a messenger of Satan. And of course, scholars disagree about what this is. I think it's pretty clear from the letter. They are the messenger of Satan. He's talking about them. They've rejected him. You are the people who afflict me and keep me grounded. Like in prayer, I get caught up into God and then you come along and bring me back to earth. You're constantly troubling me. You're insulting me. You're persecuting me. You're neglecting me. You're rejecting me. You're betraying me. And I rejoice in that because that's where Christ actually dwells. I rejoice in that weakness. He's not saying, you know, I rejoice in my sins or I rejoice in, in my own failings. That may be true too, but that's not his point. His point is Christ is present where weakness is. And you're my weakness. And I want to be with you. And so I, I'm, I'm leaving you with this thought. When you put all of those passages together with the gospel that we heard, what you see is a God who dwells with the ordinary, the poor, and the afflicted. Do you want to know where God is? Look for the poor. Look for the afflicted. Look for the ordinary. Who are the people who are so ordinary you would never think God would be there? That's where God is. Who are the people who are suffering so immensely you think God has forgotten them? That's where God is. Who are the people who have no power to change what their life is? They're at the mercy of everyone else's power. That's where God is. God is present where the poor are, the afflicted are, where the ordinary are. This is everything about Jesus' life bears witness to this. Everything about the church's tradition bears witness to this. And if that's true about history, it's true about you too. Do you want to know where God is in you? Not in your great thoughts. Not in your deep prayers. Not in your visions of heaven. God is in you where you are poor, where you are suffering, and where you are so ordinary that no one would ever think God is present in you. 
That's where God is. Not morning and evening prayer when we're caught up into the glory. Not when you wake up in the middle of the night speaking in tongues and levitate in your bed because you're so caught up in the presence of God. You are most present to God on Tuesday afternoon when you're not thinking about God at all. You're just mad about what you've just seen on Facebook. Right in that moment, ordinary, painful, impoverished moment, God is there. Therese of Lesseux, a, a saint in the Catholic tradition, she lived a life of incredible suffering, if you know anything about, about her, died as a young woman. And she wrote a series of letters, which are fascinating. I encourage you all to read them. But she has this exchange with a, with a younger sister, a, a fellow nun. And this fellow nun is struggling to, toward perfection. And she's writing these letters saying, you know, I, I feel that I'm close, but I'm not close enough. I can't, I can't love God as much as I should. And in, there are two lines from the letters that, that Therese sends back to her that I want to leave you with. This is the first one. Jesus always helps us in ways that are hidden. He helps us without seeming to. So the first thing I want to tell you, if you want to be a home for Jesus, recognize the way Jesus likes to work. He doesn't draw attention to his work. Jesus is most at work in you in the places you're completely unaware of. Rejoice in that and trust it. He likes to work without drawing attention to it. Two, she says to Celine, if you can learn to bear the trial of being displeasing to yourself in peace, if you can learn to bear the trial of being displeasing to yourself in peace, you will become a perfect resting place for Christ. And here's my last thought. Sorry for taking so long this morning. I think we all know what it is like to be rejected. We, we're not that far from the experience of Jesus in Nazareth or Paul with the Corinthians or Ezekiel with the exiles in Babylon. But the hardest part of it is we all are rejected by ourselves. There's not a single person in here who doesn't live with self-rejection every day. And it is so easy to map the pain of self-rejection onto your relationship with God. But hear me. That's not who God is to you. God is not speaking in those voices of condemnation and belittlement and accusation. God is never speaking to you in ways that tear you down. Remember what he says to Ezekiel, stand up and my spirit will be in you and lift you up. The voice of God lifts your head. It doesn't cause your head to drop. God does call us out in our sins, no doubt, but it never leads to shame. And if what you feel is shame, then that's not your sin you're confronting. It's a deeper sin in you controlling you by a lesser sin. And what we learn, have to learn to do is accept that the you God loves is the very you you're accusing. The you that God is in love with is the you that is poor and suffering and ordinary. And when you can let yourself accept that, you've become a home for God.
Let me pray for you. Thank you for your patience this morning. God, thank you that you, that you love us as we are, not as we imagine ourselves to be or want to be or strive to be or feel pressured to be. You love us as we are. God, I want to be a home for you, a place where you can dwell. We all do. Help us, Lord, to be at home with ourselves then, to accept our ordinariness, to accept our pain, to accept our poverty, our inability to make what we want to make happen so you can rest in us. We pray this in Christ and by the Spirit. Amen.